here's the thing. All narcissists know exactly what they're doing. They're all aware of their behaviors. They just don't care if it harms other people. What's up, everyone? It's your boy, Danny Lopriori, and welcome to Off the Cuff. You might know me as the guy from the Basement Yard, Vine, the Low Priori podcast. And while I love to make people laugh, just know that I've struggled with my mental health for most of my life, just like many of you. Here on Off the Cuff, I will be talking with some of the most impactful influencers, athletes, celebrities, entrepreneurs, and mental health experts to have real, unapologetic conversations about mental health and breaking the stigma that surrounds it. This show is for you, and I'm so happy to have you here. Now, let's talk Off the Cuff. Welcome back to Off the Cuff. I am your host, Daniel Priori, and today I am joined by Dr. Jamie Zuckerman. Dr. Jamie, how are you doing today? We were just talking about how we just got over being sick and uh, we're both actually back to real health. I would say I'm about like 90%. I would agree. I'm about 90%. It's been two months of my voice still isn't the same, but that's why I feel like my voice is super, super deep. The thing, the worst part is, and I know you're not this kind of doctor, but I'm going to ask you anyway. (laughs) but is there like like a main prerequisite for like any kind of doctor that you have to do yeah so as far as going to school yeah like like when you're in school like do all doctors have to take like certain like the same like prerequisites no matter like what the field is yeah there's like a biology yeah like biology anatomy statistics those kinds of prerequisites yeah oh you have to take statistics yeah I taught statistics. How bad is that? Oh, I know. I know. I know. I remember I had to take stat 101 almost like right out of high school, like as a freshman in college. I didn't graduate college. So then I think statistics is like the thing to blame, to be honest with you. Not my work ethic. No, but I was like, this might be the hardest thing ever. And then I took pre-calculus and I said, that's harder. Yeah, I didn't make I don't think I made it that far. I didn't take that. <laughs> See, this goes this goes right into like <laughs> this is like what goes right into it, right? So I know that you focus a lot, you know, and it's like kind of like your main thing. And also, guys, if you guys want to check out, she has a wellness book called Find Good Habits. What it's hard for me to ask this question because sometimes I feel like I can be a narcissist at times. Now, can narcissists know they're narcissists? So that's a good question. I get asked that a lot. So the thing with narcissists is that they don't see an issue with their behavior. So in their mind, they wouldn't have a diagnosis of anything because A, they're not doing anything wrong. B, they're above a label. Mm. They wouldn't fit into a label because that's they're smart. You know, they're smarter than that. They're better than that. Okay. So like, can narcissism be diagnosed? And do you consider like narcissism to kind of be a like a mental illness? Yeah. So narcissism, because of how a narcissist operates, right? It's very rare they're going to go into therapy. It's just not going to happen unless it's court mandated or it's a custody dispute or substance abuse. But they're rarely going to go into therapy. And if they do go into therapy, it's usually 
with somebody else, like their partner, and it's they manipulate the sessions. And, and it's very rare you're going to find a narcissist who stays in therapy and does the work. But it is it's a, it's a personality disorder, so it is a, a clinical diagnosis. And the reason why it's a little tricky and a little unique is typically they get diagnosed almost secondhand because you're working with their partners or you're working with the children of the parent who's a narcissist. And so they'll report the behaviors to you. And there's a very distinct blueprint for narcissistic behavior. So you, you kind of pick up on that, but it's, it's oftentimes secondhand because you're working with the other person in the narcissist life. Oh, okay. Why would a narcissist want to go to therapy? I have like a panic disorder and anxiety. I was diagnosed bipolar type two, just to give you like the rundown of, you know, what I go through, mm -hmm. but I love cognitive behavioral therapy. It was like one of the best things for me in my condition. Right. So what kind of therapy works best for narcissism? None. <laughs> I'm not even joking. <laughs> oh my gosh that is that is so i try not to curse that much on this show but that is that is so fucking funny but let me me back myself up so i don't get ripped apart so people that haven't done narcissists don't understand when i say this and they think i'm like promoting the stigma against narcissists. Oh. Here's the thing. <laughs> As a psychologist, my job is to help people. And for me to say that something is very unlikely to work takes right. a lot out of me. And it's the only diagnosis that I will ever say there really is very little chance that anyone's going to make a meaningful change. Period. Well, that's got to be a, a downer for you, though. Like as a psychologist, though, like on a serious side, it's like, damn, like I, I can't help this person. Yeah, but they don't come to therapy, though. That's a thing. Yeah. Mm. So, and here's the thing. There are people that are narcissists that you'll you'll see on TikTok, you'll see on Instagram that are quote self-aware narcissists, meaning they know why they do what they do. But here's the thing. All narcissists know exactly what they're doing. They're all aware of their behaviors. They just don't care if it harms other people. Mm. So all narcissists can tell you what they're doing. And I guess the more awareness you have, the more it's not even the awareness because they're all aware of what they're doing. It's their willingness to make change and meaningful change. And in order for a narcissist to make meaningful change, they have to be vulnerable. They have to, they have a lot of shame narcissists. And so they cover that up. They yeah. have to be willing to expose their shame and they just, it just doesn't happen. Would you say like narcissists are like master manipulators, like master master gaslighters when it comes to certain things? Where is the behavior learned? And do you think people are born narcissists or is it a nature versus nurture thing or maybe a mixture of both? So there's research that supports both, but the majority of the research and, and, and just what clinicians see typically is that it's more of a learned pattern of behavior. We know there's structural brain differences between someone who's a narcissist and non-narcissist, but the pattern itself is developed very early on, usually from an environment that is unpredictable, that's abusive, that's neglectful, not consistent. So it doesn't mean that you will become a narcissist if you have parents that are narcissists. You have to have an unpredictable, chaotic, toxic environment. Mm. Yeah, because you, you would think like, I never claim to be the smartest person, but I'm just saying like 
you would think that if someone gets treated like a piece of shit, you know, they're not going to be a piece of shit themselves. Yeah. But, you would but, think you know, that. You yeah. would think that, but it's honestly, it's probably the opposite way around. I would say about large amount of the time. Yeah, it usually goes one extreme or the other. It's either yeah. if a person is berated by their parents, nothing they ever do is good enough. And let's say, as a, you know, children are resilient. They they develop strategies to to manage their upbringing to get through life, right? Like we all had our stuff growing up. Like we all, as kids, tried to figure out how best to get through the situation. And those strategies that we learned work for us as kids. Mm. But when you get into adulthood, if those patterns that you used worked then, but now the situations that you're in, the people that you're with don't operate in that way like your parents, but yet you're still using that same strategy, that's kind of when you start to hit walls and things aren't working. And so really that's kind of what a personality disorder is in an extreme is that children develop these coping strategies that are adaptive then, but they never they never evolve. They just kind of keep them as is and it no longer works. So when you're treated like crap growing up and you, nothing you ever do is good enough, the child may develop a sense of, you know, kind of this shame and guilt. And then mm. they put up this wall and this facade that that they are never going to let anybody tell them they're not good enough. In fact, they're going to make other people feel less than because it makes them feel good. But then you also have the other extreme, which is you end up with someone who feels so low about themselves. So they become perfectionists and people pleasers because they don't want to upset anybody. Right. Or you have a parent that treats the child like the golden child where they could do everything wrong in the world and the parent bails them out every time. There's no consequences for their actions. So they grow up as an adult thinking they can do whatever they want, whenever they want. Uh, okay. So now, yeah, now that's, I'm starting to see like it's uh, the nature versus nurture kind of yeah. side. Of it. As Science kind of progresses, right? We're starting to see more and more people's brains, like on a higher level, people that, you know, that donate their brains to science, right? Do you think like maybe in like the next like 10 or 15 years, maybe even more though, that we'll actually find a part of the brain or has there been a part of, of the brain that has been discovered? Like, is there a narcissist like gene? Is there like a part of the frontal lobe that like shows like narcissism? Like, have we discovered something in that kind of realm that kind of actually diagnose somebody literally through like image postmortem, like, like after they're dead and we look at the yeah, like, yeah, like, you know, Alzheimer's, like, that, right. Alzheimer's and like CTE. And it's like, Oh yeah, we can't tell until like after you're dead. I'm right. like, How are we going to figure this out? Yeah. So to my knowledge, there isn't a gene, but when they do functional MRIs and they do certain brain studies, certain parts of the brain will light up differently in narcissists than non-narcissists like the parts of the brain that are, you know, judgment and decision-making parts of the brain that are kind of mood regulation. A lot of times people will say when narcissists go into narcissistic rages, their eyes will mm. like turn black. Right. And that's our, that's our nervous system responding. So to like heightened stimuli. So those parts of the brain will start to light up I and mean, it's giving a very general overview, but there are definite brain differences in terms of the functioning of a narcissist versus a non-narcissist. Yeah. And, and don't be afraid to do general overviews because that's probably like, you know, what I'm going to understand the most. So don't feel bad. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're, you're not going to be uh, challenging my intelligence and, and hurting my narcissistic. Game, okay? So d d don't worry. Don't worry when it comes to that. Just a little bit about you, Dr. Z. Dr. Z, what drew you to focusing and honing in on narcissism, right? Was it something that you've always kind of wanted to do? 
or was it something that you just saw that is i don't know if the numbers but like statistically are narcissists going up or are they going down i'm guessing with social media we're shooting up so narcissistic personality disorder technically you know if you look at the dsm the, the clinical the percentage of narcissists is extremely low and i was just having this conversation with someone that when we were in graduate school many many moons ago we focused on depression anxiety bipolar schizophrenia borderline personality disorder but we we never really focused on narcissistic personality disorder one of the reasons being they don't present for treatment but the other part is that the percentage is so low in the population however it, that's due to a couple of reasons. One, and I know my colleagues agree with me on this, it's, it's grossly underdiagnosed because they don't present. Oh, sure. Right. And a lot of times the people that are in narcissistic abusive relationships, because it's such a nuanced type of abuse, they don't even realize that they're being abused because it's not what people normally think of when we think of abusive relationships. So it goes very underdiagnosed, it's very hidden. When I went into private practice, I saw mostly women, only saw adults, saw mostly women. And a lot of them were coming in for relationship difficulties, depression and anxiety. And what I started seeing over the years was this very distinct pattern of behavior that they would describe with their partners mm. and or their parents. And over the years, you know, you just, I mean, I knew what we were dealing with was narcissism, but I realized they had no idea, nor had they ever really heard of it. And there was this big gap of like information. And so a couple of years ago, you know, I just, I remember this, I was at the beach and I was like, psychologists have Instagram pages. Is that tacky? Do, do we, are we allowed to do that? <laughs> so I was like, my kid's babysitter was like, yeah, do it. So I did it. And then here we are. And what, what ended up happening was I started kind of posting a lot about narcissism. My best friend was with somebody with narcissistic personality disorder and was going through a divorce. And I kind of, I always say like, unfortunately front row seats to it. And it was absolutely horrible. And I was like, God, people need to know what this is so they don't get into this. Mm -hmm. And I started posting about it. And when the pandemic hit, people were stuck home in these situations and social media was an outlet for them. And they started sharing stories. And, and I, you know, when you have social media has allowed over the years, past 10 years, whatever, survivors to share their stories. And it just kind of grew from from that. And there wasn't really that many specialists at the time who were doing this. There was Dr. Romani, who who is kind of like the guru of narcissistic personality disorder. And she was really one of the few that were that were out there. There was really not that much information. So I just felt like I really wanted to almost like preventative medicine, teach mm. people what to look for so that they don't get into these relationships. Can you be a recovering narcissist? No. You will always have narcissistic. I can laugh. I can laugh. You will Even always can... have narcissistic personality disorder. Again, Asking for a friend, you know what I yeah. mean? Yes. Your friends will always have narcissistic personality disorder. You can gain awareness, sure. And there are people, you know, I always get this a lot, like, you know, you're stigmatizing votes, but there are people that will sure make some changes but the degree to which you really have to work with someone to make meaningful changes and have them stay in therapy and it's just rare it's super rare i feel like narcissist sociopath yes ocd and autism are like the top four things that people just self-diagnose themselves with 
Yeah, and that's a huge pet peeve of mine. Huge, it huge. drives me nuts to be like, oh my god, I'm like so autistic. Okay, so so I'm I like, just well, have you been evaluated? Yeah, like, like if you're saying, oh my god, I I like it's it's my OCD or like I'm so neat, it's my OCD. Then you don't have OCD because OCD is not you don't do it because you like cleanliness. That just means you're neurotic and like clean things <laughs> and you're neat, right? Yeah. OCD is a debilitating anxiety disorder where you cannot function. You are so consumed in your own head. You are torturing yourself and you don't like, there is nothing glamorous. There is nothing beneficial. There is nothing that you like about having OCD. That's number one. I can't even imagine, you know, doing this show, I have a lot of people reach out to me and and, and I, I got to know a lot of people through this show. Yeah. And then talking to people that have been diagnosed with, with OCD, they actually have reached out to me. And they're like, I really appreciate that you're kind of, you have that stance of, if you tell me that you're OCD, the first thing that comes out of my mouth, I go, oh, so you were diagnosed? We got to stop that yeah. narrative. You know, I'm like, huh? you just say things like that. I mean, yeah, if, if you're saying, I always say, if you say I'm so OCD, you're not, you're not, because there's so no. much shame. There's so much embarrassment. There's so much guilt associated with it they're not talking about it that's why it's like you know the biggest threat to modern medicine when it comes to mental health i feel like social media is, is social media <laughs> and, and and google because yeah. the amount of self diagnosis love your van cleef bracelet by the way <laughs> you're good i didn't know that stuff listen i wow. am a girl at heart when it comes to shopping. That was impressive. That was yes, impressive. I am a girl at heart, and I love Van Cleef bracelets. Thank you. Anyway, about me not being a narcissist. Yes. It does drive me crazy, though, when people self-diagnose themselves. Right. Because going from someone, it's like, I earned my badges and my stripes, you know? Well, it invalidates people's experiences. That's what, exactly what it is. It's like, yeah. listen, I didn't go to, like, a psych ward and That's do all right. this extensive therapy and right. get this diagnosis and go through trying multiple medications to find what works for me. One right. made me fat. One made me depressed. One, you know, they were like, oh, this is an antidepressant, but it can give you suicidal thoughts. I was like, all right, it's an oxymoron, but I'll take it. Right. You know, so like I didn't go through all of these things. Yes. And find what works for me to have somebody just be like, oh, my God, I'm so bipolar sometimes. Oh, great. That's the other one. Oh. Bipolar disorder isn't just someone that's moody with mood swings. Bipolar no, disorder is like it's... a distinct period of like two weeks where you are like manic and delusional. And like, it's, it's, it's not moodiness. And then the it's same, you know, I tell people all the time, like, listen, like you guys do not want this. No. And same with ADHD. Like you said, ADHD is not just, you can't focus or concentrate. Find me one person in today's world that can focus and concentrate. None of us can. It's, None of us can. I would I say it's I impossible. Mean, I forget to pick my kids up from school. Like I know none of us can, right? It's, and it's half the scary. time it's anxiety. And then what happens is these people will go to their primary care doctors, which makes me scream. The primary care doctor doesn't give them proper testing, puts them on a stimulant. And now they have anxiety plus a stimulant. And now they feel even worse. Do you think that PCPs should be able to prescribe antipsychotics, prescribe anti-anxiety medications, stuff of that nature? I think certain primary care doctors are very well equipped to do this. My concern and when I'm told to, quote, stay in my lane is when I get a patient who sees their primary care doctor who is prescribing them 
benzodiazepines, Xanax, Ativan, Clonopin to take daily. Like, yeah. No, because if you're taking that daily, then you need an SSRI, period. Because mm-hmm. then you run into addiction and all that stuff, rebound anxiety. I know that for a fact because I'm I, I, I'm in the process of weaning off of a medication because you know I I take escitalopram, which is mm-hmm. generic Lexpro, mm-hmm. and uh, I take clozapine, but I was ta- I used to take three milligrams a day. That's a lot. A lot, you know. Yeah. And now I'm down to point two five. That's you know, the thing is that the tapers crazy. Like people don't understand how hard no. the taper off of benzodiazepines. Is. Oh, it's it, it takes a long time. It's a, it's months. It's yeah. months. It, it's a long time and it's a really grueling process. And the anxiety that you have when you're going off of it is brutal. Um, they should, you know, that kind of medicine should be taken. Like if I don't, I hate flying. So when I fly, I take it out of it. Right. Oh. Or, you know, Ooh. if you're going to have an MRI, you take something, or if you just take it once in a while, or if you know, every time you go here, you tend to have panic attacks, you take it before you go. That's what it's for. But when you have chronic anxiety every single day, that is not what it's for. That's when the SSRIs, like Le- you know, Lexpro come into play. Yeah. I, I will only work with primary care doctors who will ask my opinion, who know not to prescribe benzodiazepines in that way. What I don't mind is if somebody sees a psychiatrist for an evaluation and then sees them a couple of times and their medication stable, their symptoms are stable, then they can go to their primary care doctor to, to do that. But I think any right. changes that need to be made, especially when you're in cocktails and medication, I, I always refer to a psychiatrist. Always. Yeah, yeah. I remember because I was like, damn, like three milligrams. Is that a lot? But yeah. it was so bad for me. Once I learned kind of the science of what was going on, I've talked about this on the show before it helped ease my mind on like yes. why because my my anxiety and my stuff is is honed in on health anxiety thinking yes. you're dying yes. the impending doom aspect of it yes so, you know being able to wean off it and i tell people i'm like listen man like it's tough very it's very. tough i'm happy that i've gotten down the point two five but it's like almost like i don't want to say it's almost like you're like a drug addict but it's it's, it's to the point where you're like no, it's, it works in the same parts of your brain that alcohol i mean it, it's it's it, yes. it, it, it that's exactly what it is it's an addiction it's not an intended you know it's not intended no. it's not your fault but your body is chemically addicted to those types of medications and that's the thing too it's like almost uh like how much is like 0.25 like doing doing for me you know yeah, it's a very like fair. It, it might even be below like a therapeutic dose at this yeah. point. Yeah, I always look at at my benzodiazepine in the way that you say it, though, too. It's like it's like a Superman's cape. Correct. Listen, I have had people that have had scripts for so long and they carry it with them. They have never taken it. But just knowing that they have it. Automatically reduces their, their anxiety and fine. Great. Whatever. That's fine. I'm fine with that. The you brain know? is so powerful and scary. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, and like you said, once, once you had like a grip and you kind of figured out what was going on with your anxiety, just having an understanding of it and being objective to it gives you that sense of clarity and control that at least, you know, what's triggering it. It's not out of left field. It's you understand why it's happening and that gives people a lot of comfort. Oh yeah. Just, I recommend people all the time to, I always say like, Oh, so like how would you do for your, your anxiety to kind of, you know, be able to put yourself in a position to like live an everyday life yeah. and be like high functioning, you know, panic disorder, learn the science, Yep. learn the science, learn about the fight or flight. We've yep. talked about it so many times on this show, but I hammer it home all the time. Yeah. Learning the science is going to help you so much when it comes to actually just being like, this is why, my body is doing this. 
And this is why I always stress too, for that exact reason, your mental health and your physical health are not two different things. Panic disorder is physical. Oh, yeah. It's not as you think you're dying, but the physical stuff is what you need to focus on. And so I think same with depression. I mean, your physical self is is affected just as much as your mental. That's the scary part about it is when you reach like a certain diagnosis, it's almost like, oh, man, I have like so much homework. Like it, like that's like where my head goes. I'm like, yeah, damn, dude, I got to like learn how to express myself. I have to learn. I have to try and practice these communication behaviors that I have to get better at. And then it's like, oh, damn. And then I have to like go like to the gym now, too. I'm yeah. like, fuck. Yeah. I have to eat a lot. I have to eat clean. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things that I'm so proud of how far humans have come. As a species, right? But sometimes I wish. We were still just walking around with clothes with little cloths on our things, caveman style, and kind of just living off the land because yeah. I look at like my dog sometimes. Well, it's funny you should say that. Do you want to know why that is? Why? This no, is don't tell me is. I'm a narcissist. Wait. No, 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 no. Narcissists don't worry about being narcissists. You're good. Right, so yes. the reason why you say that, and there is so much truth to that statement, and the reason why you refer to your dog is this. Human beings, suffering is part of the human condition, right? But the reason why human beings are so bad at it is because we have the capacity for language. Because we can look at something and then label it as bad. And then that word bad sets up certain places in our brain. So when we say bad, then this chemical is really... So because we have the capacity for language, we are able to internalize, interpret, misinterpret, misperceive negative self-talk, all that stuff. Dogs don't have, as much as we think they understand us, right? They don't have the capacity for language. And so they're not capable. When you leave, the dog's not sitting there going, oh man, where'd he go? I miss him. I wonder if he still loves me. Do you think he loves me? I don't know. I was really rude this morning. They're not doing that. Yeah, they're just like, where's the food guy? Where's the Right. And so they don't have the capacity for language. And so when you remove language from the equation, it's a whole different ballgame mm. because then where's the depression and anxiety coming from? It's true. The, the human ability to communicate is a double-edged sword. screwed us up. Damn it. Yeah. You want to know what's weird about that too? Just on that topic is the older I get, the more simple things amaze me. Like, yes. you know, like I was sitting down the other day and being like, this TV is amazing. You know? And then and I was, so, I was yeah. like, how does that cool. work? Yeah, I'm starting to like being like, whoa, that's so amazing. And then the other day, I'm literally sitting, I'm sitting on my couch. I was watching a movie and they were watching a French film in the movie. And I said, you know, it's amazing how there's so many different languages for people to curse at each other. In. This is how you know that your anxiety is definitely better because you wouldn't have noticed that before. I guarantee it. How amazing a TV is because you would have been so consumed with your anxiety and in your head that you wouldn't even have had that thought. So that's yeah. how you know you're doing okay. I just did a, like a solo episode of the show, like kind of like a journal entry that I put out. And like my life is really good right now. So like, you know, like in, in terms of like things to like worry about, that's like one of the worries. I'm like, you know, I wonder how like a trash compactor works. So now I'm like Googling things and like just sitting right, around. It's all objective to you. So yeah. Like, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm just like learning the like learning about these small things that like make yeah. no sense. Right. But for some reason it's like, oh wow, like this is the first time in a while that like I've been actually able to like worry about stuff that makes no sense. Yeah. Do you see staying in the realm of like anxiety and panic? Do narcissists struggle with anxiety and panic or are they like kind of like the cause of it? No, they they definitely have anxiety and it's tr- but they won't say they're anxious. It'll usually come out as agitation and rage and manipulation and verbal abuse or silence, you know, come out in different ways. They get very anxious when they feel like people are going to leave them or figure them out or they're going to get caught for something or somebody exposed, challenged yeah. them. There's a fear of being exposed. Correct. Exactly. Dr. Z, what is the difference between sociopaths and narcissists? Mm-hmm. So sociopaths and narcissists and borderline personality disorder are three personality disorders that kind of are in the same what we call cluster. They all kind of overlap sometimes, but but borderline personality disorder is is different in the sense of it's treatable and there's specific treatments for it and it's long process, but it's it's workable and it just has a different function. Narcissists and sociopaths tend to overlap a lot more. So they're similar in the sense that they the person lacks empathy, lacks remorse, rules don't apply to them. They tend, well, they don't care if they harm other people. The difference is, is that antisocial personality disorder, the person tends to be more volatile, aggressive, impulsive. The law doesn't matter. You know, as kids, they may have like harmed small animals. They right. harm other people for pleasure, for- They're combustible like human beings. Control. Yeah, yeah, like they're, they're it's, it's more, you know, crime, that kind of stuff. Whereas someone with narcissistic personality disorder, they tend to be much more intentional with what they do, intentional with their manipulation. They harm other people, not necessarily for enjoyment, although that, that is part of it. It's they have a grandiose sense of self. They are, feel they are entitled to whatever it is that they want. And however they need to get that, whether it's sex, money, notoriety, whatever, Mm. They'll do whatever they need to get that and maintain that. And if they hurt you in the process, well, you were in the way. So like, in a sense, though, they're kind of like the ultimate survivors in a weird way. What do you mean? You know how like people like uh, will make jokes like, oh, like who'll cut your throat to get ahead? Yeah. They're like, kind of like literal. Yes. In a sense. For, so- for sociopaths. Yes. For yeah. Sociopaths. But, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. They, I want to Where they overlap, though, is that narcissists can kind of go into that that realm of, of sociopathic behavior when you see like those dateline episodes 2020 episodes oh, where man. the narcissistic spouse and then they like murder them right like that's where they go into that sociopathic behavior like you're in my way and instead of getting separated or divorced and whatever i'm gonna kill you yeah <laughs> you know, like, i have to delete you from the earth correct because you're an object to them. You don't have a separate mind, values, opinions. You're an object and you're in the way. Mm. And so, you know, yeah. narcissists look at people as objects and they have a distinct purpose. And once that purpose is done, you're done. Where it goes again into the antisocial aspect of things is physically harming somebody and really having absolutely zero remorse. Mm. Now, I want to stay in that realm. I feel like the word gaslight gets thrown around like yeah. super easily. And it's like people are being gaslit into 
thinking they're gaslighting they're people. Gaslit. Yes. Yeah, they're gaslit yes. into thinking they're gaslit. Can you give me a doctor's definition of gaslighting just so the people listening can actually know what gaslighting is? Because I feel like a lot of people actually don't really know what gaslighting is. Mm-hmm. And I'm included in that equation. Sometimes yeah. I'm like, did I just gaslight my dog? Like, I'm literally like, what am I, what am I doing? Like, I, <laughs> no, they don't have language. They yeah. Yeah. So they, so they can't be gaslit. <laughs> they can't be gaslit. <laughs> they can't be gaslit. No. All right. That's, that's the thing. All right. But what would you say the definition and is gaslighting kind of a symptom? So gaslighting is a common behavior of narcissists. People can listen, people can gaslight all the time, but the, the reason behind it is is a little different with narcissists. So I think what happens is people confuse gaslighting with lying. Yes. And they're two very different things. So let me tell you what gaslighting is not first. So gaslighting is not lying, meaning if you say to me, you know, Jamie, where did you go last night? And I say, no, where I was home, but you know that I was out. And I keep saying, no, I was home, I was home, I was home. And you're saying, here is a picture of you. You were out when you present me with the evidence against my lie. I got to come clean. Right. I got caught. Right. Like I fucked up. I got caught. Like it is what it is. Your Van Cleef necklace is in this picture right here. Okay. You're wearing the same Van Cleef. Okay. So here's, here's gaslighting. Okay. Jamie, you know, where were you? I was home. No, you weren't. You were out. No, I was home. Jamie, here's a picture of you. That's not me. What? Yes, yes, that's not me. Uh, yes, it is you. No, it's not me. Something's wrong with you. Look closer at the picture. You always do this. You always like mess people up. It's like this weird thing that you have. You're it, like, what are you talking about? That's not me. Mm. And if it is me, so it's a fake picture. Like it's a deliberate attempt to make the other person feel crazy. It's an attempt to make the other person not only doubt like their own thinking, but they start to not trust their own judgment. They start to not trust other people's judgment. They only trust the narcissistic partner's judgment. So their reality is shaped and formed literally by the narcissist telling them what is true and what isn't true. Ah, oh, see, you want to know something? That's kind of the best way someone's ever explained it to me. Did you, I all things that... Did you ever see the movie 1984? Yes, yes. Okay. yes. I, read the, I read the book as well, yeah. The very, very end when they're holding up the fingers and they're like asking them how many fingers and they're like, they literally like warp the, like it literally, there's brain changes that occur to, they're, they were reconstructing his reality. I mean, that that's literally what it does. It reconstructs your reality where you have completely lost your sense of self. It's stripped away. Your reality is what the narcissist yeah, tells you. It's like two two plus two equals five. That's exactly right. Yeah, we're just gonna like you know that's yes. the thing too. Like a lot of it boils down to language. A lot of this boils down to communication. If humans didn't weren't able to communicate with each other, think about that. Mm-hmm. Because people say to me, they're just like, "Damn, like I wonder what like cavemen did like." When they, I was like, I don't know if cavemen were like depressed though. They kind of just went off like instincts and stuff. Yeah. Yes, they were present focused because they yeah. weren't. There was no language to pull them out of the present moment. Yeah, they they either just like fought each other to death, like, and 
their anxiety That's though women against their will and like yeah, no, their, their but think about it their, their anxiety was based on adrenaline rushes and dopamine surges their muscle tension it was based more on physical stuff so the therapy that i do with people is called acceptance and commitment therapy it's a form of behavior therapy and one of the biggest kind of underlying principles of it, let's say, is, is the context of language in behavior. It's very, it's interesting. So you, I can send you links to it, but that's, that's exactly yeah, what absolutely. it is. It's separating you from thoughts and language and having you look at it rather than being all tangled up in it. You know how people say like all humans are going to be like this because of our phones, like, uh, like a hundred years from now, mm-hmm. our brains have to be, they're going to be applesauce in like 200 years. <laughs> Just from everything that we, you know, like when I was in high school, I'm 34. Anxiety was it was like known, like, it was like but nobody really talked about it. Nobody knew that shit. No. Now I go back and like every once in a while, I've, I've gone back to speak at uh, my my old high school a couple of times. They all have anxiety. I'm yep. like, something's going on. Yep. Something is going on and it has to do with exterior influence. It's almost like Clockwork Orange where they like they keep his eyes open. Yes. You know, and they shoot all that information into him. And he's like, no, yes. I'm over. And he's just yes. like giving him eye drops. Yes. That's yes. what's happening to us. We just yes. have too much going on. I think, well, also there's social media and there's the addictive quality to it, right? So oh, there's that, that piece. And so oh. when they're withdrawing from it during the day, you know, it's it's giving this, this back and forth anxiety. So that's mm. one thing. The other thing too, is it's just way more acceptable to talk about. It's everywhere you look, everybody's anxious. And so I think that it's, talked about more when i was in high school nobody would talk about anxiety but that doesn't mean that people didn't have it they probably just didn't, like they didn't know what it was they didn't want to say anything they felt crazy because it just wasn't talked about it's hard because you know the thing i feel bad for mostly like are the kids i know i can handle it you know i put enough work in to do it when I, you see like a 11 12 13 year old Going yeah. through it. in your mind, you would just do anything to switch places with them. And yeah. I could get through this for you. And then yeah. I'll give you your life back when you're like 22 yeah. or something. Yeah. I know you mostly treat adults, right? What's like the youngest age, like a narcissist can actually be diagnosed? Because you got to have some kids out there that are straight narcissism up. You're not really supposed to diagnose anyone before the age of 18 with a personality disorder because children are still their frontal lobes are still developing so they seem impulsive they seem self-centered i mean if you think about teenagers they're they're super self-centered everyone's looking at them everyone cares about them so so yeah i was a real piece of shit yeah so there'd be a lot of misdiagnosed children with narcissism like when i look at my like five-year-old everything is about her right but because developmentally that's where she's at yeah and they can't take care of themselves so it has to be it has to be exactly exactly so i think with kids who are on the course of becoming a narcissist, I think what you're going to see more of, but again, it won't, won't get diagnosed because it's not even going to really be noticed would be manipulative behaviors with their friends, triangulating their friends against each other. Right. Making, make, make, like making their friends fight. Yeah. Like a lot of <laughs> there was kids right? like, like that. Just like, yo, you guys should fight each other. Yeah. Like-, like, right, right. We talk about love bombing, like, doing a lot of things for your friends, but then withdrawing yourself. So they'll still have those same patterns, but they're not really developed and you don't really want to diagnose it because it could just be because they're adolescents. And so really you don't start seeing it, seeing it until they're older and they're independent in their own interpersonal relationships. And you see the patterns play out. Do you not treat kids because you have kids? 
or or is I, just like something that you don't like just want to no, deal with? I never wanted to work with kids. I have my own and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. Yeah. You ever like self-diagnose your kids sometimes and you're like, hold up, chill, stop doing that. Yeah. My, I mean, my first, he was like born anxious. Like you could tell his startle response, his everything was like heightened and he he had like a gag reflex and textures bothered him. And he was so anxious. I worked on that early. Like I put him into therapy with someone and I got him like, he's, he's still a very cautious, perfectionistic, anxious kid, but it's so much better than it, than it was. And then they all are born with their own temperament. And I always, you know, tell people, you don't want to change the kid's temperament. You want to change your parenting to meet their temperament you know what? that's that's a great way to put it actually he just I either lucked out or got very unlucky that his mom's a psychologist <laughs> i think around 16 or 17 he'll say he's not lucky and then yeah. when around 25 to 30 yeah, the phone right. calls will increase right you know what i mean he'll start hanging around a little bit more <laughs> and then he'll have that epiphany of being like you know what you were right yeah yeah. The older I get, the more I realize my parents were right about I think a lot of everyone things. worries that their kid has something like everyone worries that their kids have something. And I think also parents these days are very quick to assume that something's wrong with their kid when really it's like maybe the kid just isn't a good verbal learner. Maybe they need more like visual stuff or they keep popping out of their seat. Well, like they're 10. Yeah, you try to hold down a 10-year-old. I think that we're quick to diagnose children with ADHD, with things like that. I do think it's better that it's talked about so that kids can, who need the treatment, are are able to get the treatment. For sure. So, you know, just like, you know, skipping from, you know, kids, but kids are products of relationships, obviously, and science and sex. But, you know, uh, if, if, you, if you go into relationships, right? How can somebody get out of a narcissistic, abusive relationship? And my thing is, if I dated a narcissist, probably going to have a hard time dating after that because your walls are up forever. Yeah. So once you are in a narcissistic, abusive relationship, you're probably not aware that it's narcissistic abuse. You just know that you can't do certain things or there will be consequences. You are scared to speak your mind. You don't know who you are. It's like you've lost yourself. And that's where the depression and anxiety kicks in. And then let's say you go to therapy. Then the therapist, if they can pick up on that, starts to explain these patterns of narcissistic behavior. Once the person realizes the blueprints of their partner's narcissistic patterns, then you start to realize that, oh, okay, that actually has nothing to do with me. Hmm. That's a pattern. They're going to be this way no matter who the hell they're with. That's a you problem. That's a you problem. And they start to separate themselves. Then they can start to predict the behaviors. Then they can learn to formulate certain boundary responses. And once that starts to happen, it becomes, quote, and I say easier, very, it is never easy to leave a narcissist. It becomes a little bit easier to leave because you feel a little bit more empowered. But on average, especially women, leaving narcissistic men on average, it takes like seven times before they actually leave. The other reason is that one, when they leave, that's the most dangerous time for physical violence. When there's kids involved and they're married, the narcissist will drag you through court and the court is not, family courts are really not good with covert narcissism, covert, that coercive control, the stuff you can't see. 
Because when you really do go to court, though, people are still human. You can manipulate. You can manipulate no, the Love the courtroom. It's their stage. They yeah. will make the other person look crazy. You would be amazed at how many times the other person loses custody. It's, oh, it's a, a big mess. Well, the other thing too, it's financially. There's usually financial abuse. Of course. So they have no earning potential or they have no access to their bank accounts. They don't know what assets they have. They don't know what investment. They don't even know where their money is. So they literally financially can't leave. So it's really tough to leave. And with a narcissist, it's really the only breakup you need an exit strategy for. Because they will never not view you as theirs because you're an object. So there's post-separation abuse. After you separate, sometimes that abuse, the stalking, the character assassination that they do, the custody crap that they pull, that sometimes is even worse than the actual abuse during the relationship. Oh, yeah. They're not going to let you get off clean. No. Mm-hmm. No, they're, com- they're, they're coming for everything. Mm-hmm. That's the scary, the scary thing about relationships is that we're starting to learn scientifically so much more about relationships just like just in general you know just like actually like the actual science behind things i wish i love science That's a Disney fairy tale. yeah that messed us up yeah it is it is and you know there are like you know like films like the stereo like typical things of like love like i remember i watched like the notebook and i was just like yeah love's not like that no no. <laughs> just being like, I really hope people don't base their lives on this thing. But they do, and that's what they look for. And so when you're with a narcissist in the beginning, they're going to love bomb the crap out of you. They are going to be charming, tell you that you're their soulmate. They love you. They've never felt this way before. They're going to make you feel so close, so connected. And then once they have you, they're going to switch. And oh. if you're looking for that Hollywood romance, if you're looking for that fairy tale, right? Like, I mean, think about Cinderella. These are what my girls watch. Cinderella, Frozen. They wanted to get married because they said the same word. Yeah. And I have to explain to my kids, like, tell me where Cinderella is 20 years from now. Right? Like. (laughs) Still dealing with her sisters. Right? Like. Not getting any of that money. She hates the stepmother. (laughs) Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and that's the thing I always say. It's like the line between reality and not reality is getting thinner by the day. It's getting scary. Even the stuff like they're doing with like AI and like virtual reality, like they're going to be AI psychologists soon. At some point, someone's going to go to a therapist that's like AI generated. It's going to happen Mm -hmm. because the demand is so high for people to go see therapists that they're going to have generated therapists. They already have like, I mean, not the same thing, but like, you know, you can text whatever the apps are where you can, you know. Oh, yeah. Not necessarily always the best care, but you're right. I agree. With you. There's actually this. I watch very strange documentaries. I like am obsessed with them, and I'll find like. Oh yeah! Right after this, I'm watching the Murdoch murders or whatever. I'm getting right yeah. after. Came, it. Out, came out today. There was this one. I forget the name of it. Where this child died from neglect because the parents would go. I forget where it was. I think it was in China. They would go to this cafe all day every day playing this virtual reality game they were so locked into that world that like the lines started slipping that it became so blurred like they looked at it as like okay this is my world now and meanwhile over here like their child passed away because i remember watching it going this isn't that far like you can see how this could happen not the child but you could see how that blurred line can oh yeah it's like a black mirror episode 
I know. I know. You know Black Mirror. That's okay. I know, I know Black Mirror. You know I, Van Cleef and Black Mirror. <laughs> yeah, Van Cleef and Black Mirror. And you know, it's like uh like my fiance will come home and she'll be like, What are you doing? I was like, nothing just playing striking vipers. Is there an unhealthy relationship with like murder mysteries and stuff? I just feel like as humans, the voyeurism, like now, yeah. like we talk about how like the older yeah. I am, like the more I yeah. realize stuff. I was watching yeah. a horror movie the other day. I was like, why am I watching this shit? What I watched last night, which I immediately got up and went to the gym right after I watched it. The whale. Have you seen the whale yet? No, it wasn't. Is it on? Is it? Available? Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can rent it now. That I want to watch. Smile Ooh. completely. Freaked. Smile. I had that same thought. Like, what am I doing with myself? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, why am I putting myself through this? I said, Look, why? No, I have to go live my life. Yeah. And, and worry about the entire film. I think the murder mystery stuff, I think, has always been there's that voyeuristic quality to it. I think it's allowing people to like almost like be anxious, but not be anxious at the same time. It's like this weird, like getting close to something that makes you very uncomfortable, but yet not having to experience the discomfort. It's almost like a roller coaster. It's like a, yeah. you want to get as close to death without dying. Kind of. Not the they want to die, but they, they're right, so right. curious you, about this that that it's it's compelling. Here's the thing. Most people are inherently good people. So when we see this like wealthy, successful guy who murdered his wife and his child, we're like, what? That doesn't fit. And so because it just doesn't fit, we're like drawn to it to try to like make sense of this nonsensical thing. For sure. And it's like, what do people always say on the news after somebody kills a bunch of people? He was the nicest guy. <laughs> they say it all the what? time. He's like, he was cool. I was like, no, obviously not. He had obviously not. Guy is a right. monster. Right. So, so, Murdoch, so he'd be a perfect example of a narcissist. Yeah. Who goes into that realm of sociopath, like kills his wife and kid. That's wild. The Chris Watts. Thing, have you ever seen like the Chris Watts stuff? Which one is that? That was the guy that killed his like his daughters and his wife. Yes, it was um, family next door, or American family. Yeah, next door. they had like yeah. all like body cam footage and stuff. So just and her Facebook page. Oh god. Oh, I was like, this is so horrible because you forget it's real people. But I'm like, I have to watch. This. Right. I mean, he killed his. Oh, that was hard. That was that was upsetting. That was a rough one because you can relate to the people. That's what we all do. It's like this is what I would do if somebody did this. Yeah, we're all selfish. That's a, the, it's a self-preservation, and that's what we we're like that with entertainment. It's like this is what I would do if he did that. Mm-hmm. You know, like if somebody did that, and it's like, yeah, but would we really do it? We all we all think that we we know what we're talking about, yeah, but you know, that's why people go it's to like school when- for thirty years. And those are the only people that should be talking about anything about anything. It's I hard. Have, I would never do that again. <laughs> do you have to have continuing education? Like, do you have to like go to like school still? Not school. I have to do 30 continuing education credits every two years. So I have to go to like workshops and lectures. And All right. That's not bad. Yeah. That's just the, that's just the fancy word for adult school. I would never go back. Yeah, no. I don't like, know. I, I remember the day where I was like, damn, dude, I never have to go to right? school again. And I was like, that was arguably like top five best days of my life. Mm-hmm. Yep. I was just like the day that I realized I never have to do this again if I don't want to. Right. It's a good feeling. It's an it's amazing feeling. feeling. I want to talk to you a little bit about John Fetterman. I saw that you were talking to different news outlets about it. 
Do you think as time goes on, because when you think of politicians, you think of power, people in power, strong representatives of our country, right? People that are that are supposed to have the rock flag and eagle mindset. You can't be weak in that position. Do you think that possibly John Fetterman was advised to not talk about that stuff? I was thinking about that. That's where my mind goes. I mean, I think that I hate to, I don't know. It, that may not be so far off. That had to be a conversation because had, politicians yeah. can't just come out and be like, yo, what's up, guys? Unless you yeah. like Trump, like that guy would just tweet every three seconds. But like, you know, like most have a team, you know, yeah. speech writers and all that stuff. Yeah. You know, it's uh, a, yeah. I think it was probably his choice because he wanted to maybe, you know, which he's doing, make it not this secretive, stigmatized thing that it's, it happens. It happens to a lot of people and he's getting help for it. Just like you would, if your leg was broken, you know, just like you would, if you needed, you know, heart surgery, whatever, like you're seeking out help for a condition. And I mean, I'm thrilled that he did it. I think it was probably his choice to, to, right. Vocalize it, I would so there were a couple of people just be like, Hey, John, let's, uh, you know, cause yeah. you know, any sign of weakness in politics is like a death sentence a lot of the time. Yeah. And I mean, just because no one else talks about it, I highly doubt they don't have it. Mm. Yeah, you, know, know. you know, they just don't talk about it. But I would guarantee you that the majority of them have anxiety, dealt with depression, substance abuse. I mean, I mean, that's the thing. Listen, if you're in Congress and you don't have like some kind of depression, I'm worried about you. You might be a narcissist. There it is. You know, I know. I, I know I, that, that okay. just. No, that, I agree. That I is mean, the, uh, the thoughts of Danny LaPriori. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that I agree with you. I just think it's hard for the course. I can't, I, I can't imagine that they're not under significant amounts of stress. And most of the time you're seeing sad shit because it's like, hey, how are you going to yeah. fix this? And it's a sad thing usually on the other side of it. You it's know, and it's, you have to, you have to. It's one of those things where I always, I'm a conspiracy theorist at heart but like a realistic one like i'm the, like i'm not a flat earther person but i'm like flat yeah. <laughs> but, but in my mind i'm like somebody told him not to say that but he did it anyway so that's why i'm proud of him for doing it because okay. i know in politics somebody was just like hey john let's hold back my man i wouldn't be surprised and i'm thrilled that he and he did it in a very appropriate way this is what i have this is where i'm going and his wife said, just give us privacy while he, while he heals. I mean, it was handled beautifully. And, and Yeah, I, I'd rather that happen before it comes out that, you know, you know, God forbid he was doing something that he wasn't supposed yes. to be doing. Yes. And, then, and then, you know, people find, you know, I'm going to go like, you know, go talk to God now. I'm like, after you did all this stuff, why don't you do it now? Mm-hmm. Talk to the big G, figure it out. And then before something like bad happens. Yes. That's what the admirable thing about it, it wasn't like. Yeah, so-and-so sleeps with so-and-so. Right. I have to go find peace. Let my family and I just uh, be in, in privacy. I'm like, no. Right. We're not going to let you do that. You're a voted official, okay? We're not going to give you time to do that because you did some scumbaggy shit. Like, I'm not going to do that, but that's why there's something admirable. And then I do also think that you should be, and maybe they do this already, there's a conspiracy in me, you should be psyche valve before you get any kind of office. Yeah, I for the presidency, you do you have some sort of mental status check. You here. have to be psyche valve. But right? I don't know about the other positions, but president, I'm pretty sure there's a there's a 
it's part of your evaluation, your like physical evaluation. They do like a mental status exam and all that stuff to make and sure drug tests. They should all be drug tested too. <laughs> <laughs> Again, that's just the thoughts of Vix Van Cleef. You know I mean? All the views of Vix Van Cleef. by Dr. Z. They're only supported by Dr. Vix Van Cleef here. And that's me. Dr. Z, thank you so much, first of all, for coming on the show and for having uh, me. Allowing, allowing me to be a part of uh, your day today. Last question I ask everybody on the show is I like to ask psychologists and psychiatrists, are you happy today? Am I happy today? Yeah, at this moment. <laughs> I love it because it's such like a vague question. Yeah, at this moment, I'm good. I mean, you know, it depends what happens at three o'clock when my kids come home. Then I probably won't be, you know, be screaming. I'm getting married in May. I can't wait to have a kid. Should I wait to have a kid? You're never going to be ready to have a kid. I just want a kid, man. I need somebody that hangs out with me all the time. I always said that I was never ready to have kids, but but after I had them, it's not like I regretted having. You know, it's it's like if I really waited till I was ready, I still wouldn't have kids. Oh yeah, and then yeah. I'm also sitting over here like I'm going to carry the thing around for ten months. I hated being pregnant. Oh. <laughs> I hate How many kids do you have? Three. Three? Are you done? You think? Oh yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm done. In my mind, three is like a great number, but I think I'm going to cap myself at two and get I the mean, old you, snipper I'm doodle. I'm an only child. If you ever told me that I was going to have three kids, I mean, that was never even. Oh, no wonder you're a psychologist. All right. Now I get it. Now we're now now we're really peeling back the layers here, right? Part That's, two. <laughs> part two will be about only child being like, you know what? I need to study the brain. All right. Look, this is the real last question. Did yeah, you yeah. have an imaginary friend, though? I did not have an imaginary friend. Oh, I know. I did not. When you came home, what did you do? You just like read? <laughs> well, What's going on? There was no home computers. There were no <laughs> cell phones. There was no Vicks Van Cleef. There was no Vicks Van Cleef. I mean, yeah, I just came home. I'd watch like Fraggle Rock. I remember after school. That's what I did. Slaps. So hard. So hard. You were like a latchkey kid, though, right? Yes, I was. Oh, so no, yeah. It's, how the hell did you not have an imaginary friend? You were. I, am, I, I had a key, and yes, I was a latchkey kid. I would be at home till like five o'clock until like my mom got home, and then my dad would get home later. Yeah. And I'm sure they heard all about it when you turned like 25. <laughs> <laughs> I was like a kid in the early 80s, and the, the stuff they let you do now, oh my, I always say to my parents, like, you guys would have been arrested. It doesn't make any sense how that was like. No accepted. car seats, no nothing. <laughs> yeah, that my parents like expected me to cook at like 12. Yeah, burn this entire house down. What are you talking about? <laughs> That's the other thing, too. If kids had to do what we had to do, now we could watch our kids. Like, you know, you put cameras around and all yeah. that stuff. Mm -mm. You get a ring camera on Amazon and watch your kid all, the, all day, all night. Yep. I don't know how. I don't. Yeah. Horrible shit. Horrible. Horrible things. I just had this conversation with someone. There was no, your pictures that you took, you had to drop the film off at that little hut in the parking lot. Yeah. And you'd leave it there for like multiple weeks. And then they'd call you, pick it up in the envelope. And like half the time they were like your thumb or like none of them were developed properly. And then you had to get doubles if you wanted to give it to your friends. If it was just so. That's what I, I, tell people, I tell people that and now uh, I'm like, listen guys, I said, you, can take, you can take a new picture of yourself send it to the person that you want, right? But it goes up in the cloud, but like most of the time, the person gets a new picture of you. When I was a kid, 
We used to have to take pictures of our wiener and bring it to a dude. <laughs> we would have to develop pictures of my dong. And then, and then give them and to me. And you have to go pick it up. <laughs> Do you know how hard it was to send nudes in the 90s? You know what I mean? So true. In, in yeah. the early 2000s? Right. Like, you know, you even webcams. Right. I had to go show this old man my wiener. So true. So it's true. A, it's the weirdest thing. It's like, hey, what's up? Getting those pictures developed today. This guy's seeing my friggin' balls <laughs> in Walgreens. In Walgreens. Gotta make you one hour photo. God. It's the wildest thing. Listen, <laughs> where can everybody find on that you? Note. <laughs> on that note, on that note, where can everybody find you on the internet? I know you're you're all over the place with your podcast and, <laughs> and social media, but where can everybody find you? If they yeah. wanted to uh, stay in tune. My website is uh, com and Instagram, DRZ Psychologist, Dr. Z Psychologist. And my podcast is me, Dr. Z. And my books are on Amazon. Look, on my website. Look at you go. I always <laughs> say, everybody on this show is like more accomplished. I mean, they're like, what do you do? I'm like, talk about boobs on stage for a couple hours. <laughs> But yours is more fun. Yeah, I talk about how my parents uh, neglected me for a little bit and how I over over dramatized how bad they were to me, but they were actually pretty just chill parents. <laughs> I make them feel bad for about 15 minutes and then I go home and then, you know, I, and I try to keep my life together. Exactly. Yeah. Doing our best. Again, Dr. Z, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Go check out Dr. Z's podcast, books. What are the name of the books? Find Your Calm and Find Good Habits. Find Your Calm, Find Good Habits. Go find them on Amazon. See what I did there. And we'll be back next week with another amazing guest and another amazing show. And uh, I have to go get some new pictures developed. <laughs> Thanks for joining me on another episode of Off the Cuff, presented to you by 101 Life. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and send us some love with a review. And don't forget, we're all in this together and you're never alone. Peace. Fate Entertainment. Ah!